You're listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. Praise God, you can have a seat. It is good to be together this morning to sing praises to our God and to open up his word together. Before we start, I want to celebrate two things that happened last week, and we always want to celebrate change that is happening in the lives of our people and in our hearts. And last weekend, Johnny Stewart came and gave his life to the Lord through baptism, so we celebrate that. This morning, we're going to see one more do the same, and then we also celebrate with the Combs family, James and Tina, who came and placed their membership here at Memphis Christian. We love to see what God is doing in the hearts of his people, and if you want to know what it means for you to take a next step, then we encourage you to just fill out that welcome home card and drop that in up here or at the end of service with the greeters and let us know how we can help you connect and take some next steps. Go ahead and open up your Bible with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17, which is where we're going to be this morning, but I want us to open up in prayer as we go to God's Word, so let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you, Lord, that we get to come together now and listen to it taught and preached. And Lord, I pray that through the preaching of your word, that you would be made known. That that our hearts would be affected in a way that lead us to glorify you. And Father, if there are any of those who, who don't yet know you, don't yet have this relationship with you, then I pray that as you are made known through your word, that they would respond and say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Father, for our church family and for the ways that you continue to reveal yourself to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, by the chapter heading in your Bible, you can probably guess that today's sermon is going to be on a story that is likely familiar to every single one of us in here. And if it's not, that's okay, because I've learned to never take for granted what somebody knows about the Bible. But the story that we're looking at this morning is one that is very well known, not just within the Christian faith or the Jewish faith, but across all faiths. It's it's one that is well known regardless of what your knowledge of the Bible is. I knew this story as a child even before I began attending church, right? This This is one of those stories that has been retold over and over and over again throughout the generations in many different ways, and and, and that's right and good. It is a story that should be retold because it's an epic account, but we retell it not for the reasons that the world might retell it. And that's one of the things that I want us to consider this morning as we look at this story. I want us to consider why is it in our Bibles, and I want us to see how it fits into the overall story of the Bible. This grand narrative that has been unfolding for us throughout the start of the year. And I hope that you have continued to read. And if you've not continued to read or you haven't started, that you would just start. Tomorrow morning, wake up, open up your Bible and just start. I cannot emphasize enough how little time it takes to read and to be encouraged by God's word. But we've been looking at this story throughout the start of the year. We're going to look at this story, and yes, we are going to draw some things out of it. But I want us to look at it and consider the why. 
Why did God give us this story? Every single thing that is contained within the pages of your Bible was given to you by God. He said, this is important. I want you to know it. And so why is this in our Bibles? And one of the things that I hope that you've picked up on as you've been reading through your Bible is that it is not a story about human beings. Pastor Matt Chandler writes, this is the story of the Bible, not you and me. It is God and God alone, God's name and namesake alone. The point of everything is God's glory so that to God alone will be the glory. The Bible is not about us. It is about God himself and the manner in which he has always sought to make himself known to the world. And what we've seen through our Bibles is that many times God makes himself known through unlikely people in seemingly impossible circumstances. That is what the story of David and Goliath is about. And it's the primary reason that we see it in the pages of our Bibles. And so we begin at the start of the chapter. The scene is set for us there in chapter 17 as a final battle of sorts is about to take place between the Israelites and the Philistines. The Philistines have been this nation uh, among many other nations who have been kind of a thorn in the side of God's people. We saw them pretty prevalent in the time of Samson, right? The Philistines were the ones that Samson was primarily up against. But this battle is about to start. The battle lines have been drawn. The Israelites are on one hill and the Philistines are on another hill and there's a valley that separates them and the two sides are about to collide. But before the fight begins, the Israelites see a man making his way through the Philistine camp to the front of the line. They know that he's coming because he stands larger than any other soldier on either side of the fight. No one can compare to his massive frame and his name, of course, is Goliath. Verses four through six give us the description. He stands at six cubits in a span. Anybody in here measure by cubits? No, no, we don't measure by cubits. The footnote in my Bible says that he was nine feet, nine inches tall. And there's some debate among commentators about his actual height. But nevertheless, he is at least over eight feet tall. He is a big man. But it wasn't just his height because you can be tall and scrawny. I would settle for tall and scrawny. Like, I, I would be okay with that. But, he, but he's not tall and scrawny. He wears a coat of armor on his chest that by itself weighs 125 pounds. Not to mention the bronze on his legs and the helmet on his head. The tip of his spear alone is 15 pounds. You know, the, the person that I feel the most sorry for in this story is Goliath's armor bearer. The one, the one who had to lug all of this armor around for him. But this beast of a man, he steps through the front line and he has a message for the Israelites. Look at what he says beginning in verse eight. He says, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, then you will become our subjects and you, the Israelites, will serve us. Verse 4 described Goliath as a champion of the Philistine army. 
And what he is proposing here is called champion warfare. See, we think of the word champion as just someone who wins a competition, who gets the gold medal at the end of the Olympics. But champion has a different definition here. Champion warfare meant that rather than these two sides fighting one another in this massive battle and inflicting all of these heavy casualties, that each side would choose one person And those two people would come together for a duel, and the winner of that duel would determine the winner of the battle. That's what Samson, or that's what, not Samson, that's what Goliath is saying here. Samson was a big guy too, that's where that comes from. That's what Goliath is saying here. You choose someone to come out and fight me. If they win, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill your champion, then you will serve us, and you will serve us forever. And the problem was that the Israelites didn't have a man tall enough, big enough, strong enough, and certainly not brave enough to face this giant in a single battle. Now, now in truth, there was one who was at least somewhat comparable to Goliath. When we're introduced to him several chapters earlier, he is described as a man who is a head taller than everybody else. He, he has the markings of a champion, but this man is not on the front line. This man is King Saul, the one whom God had appointed to lead his people. And Saul is not there on the front line. He's certainly not willing to face Goliath. In fact, verse 11 tells us that Saul, along with the rest of his army, is dismayed and terrified. Saul is afraid of Goliath. Now, in David and Goliath's sermons, Goliath typically represents and symbolizes the giants of the world. And and we can call a giant anything that challenges the authority of God in any way. That's what Goliath did. He comes out saying, this day I defy the armies of Israel. But to defy the army of Israel wasn't just to defy the soldiers and it wasn't just to defy Saul. It was to defy God himself. Because this was the army of God. God was their king. Now you and I face these kinds of giants all the time. When we think about those things that come up in our lives who defy God. Immediately our minds may go to the cultural giants. I was out of town a few years ago. And this commercial came on the TV for an organization that was titled something like Freedom From Religion. And their, their whole point was to rescue people from their religion. And this man gets on the TV and he says, my name is such and such and I'm not afraid of going to hell. Now that, that is open and blatant defiance against our God. Last night I challenged the crowd to find one show or movie on Netflix that looks at Christians in a positive light. And of course, last night, somebody texted me one, uh, but he missed the point. The point is that the vast majority of what we see on our popular media televisions will not portray Christians in a positive way. We'll see documentaries about church scandals and predatory pastors and all of these things are real, but we will not see Christians portrayed in a positive way. I, I watched this this stupid movie a couple weeks ago 
about this giant troll. It was a Norwegian movie. Anybody seen that on Netflix? It was, don't watch it. It was terrible. <laughs> but, but in this movie, there, there's the, the only man who is portrayed as Christian, who, who is being shown praying the Lord's Prayer, gets eaten by this troll, and, and he gets eaten because the troll could smell his Christian blood. It's all over the place. The blatant defiance of who God is and what he's called us to be, and you and I become the villains. We become vilified when we choose to follow this God. Goliath defied God in this way. But giants that defy God can be even more personal than that. We face health giants that seek to rob us of our vigor and strength in serving the Lord or that can cause us to become so discouraged that we begin to wonder if God is even hearing our prayers for healing. We face the giants of loss when someone we love suddenly dies and we're left asking, why would God allow that to happen? The giant of world events that lead us to wonder who is really in control because it seems like everything is out of control or even the giant of personal doubt. We've been questioning whether all of this is real or like that man on that commercial, we would have more freedom in no longer believing that there are eternal consequences to the things that we do and the things that we believe. But the reality is that our belief, your and my belief, does not determine what's right or wrong. Right or wrong is right or wrong. It doesn't matter what I believe about it. Giants come in all different shapes and sizes. And Goliath can certainly symbolize any of these things or anything else that we come up against that defies God. These things that are of the world. He was a champion of the world. He had all the hallmarks of a worldly champion. He wasn't just big and strong. He was battle-hardened. He had been to battle. He had the most advanced weaponry. Early on, earlier on, we read that the Philistines, they had the monopoly on blacksmithing, which means that the best the Israelites could get from them were gardening tools, certainly not weapons. And part of the problem is that the Israelites were looking for a champion of their own who looked like Goliath, a challenger who could match his attributes on the battlefield. Someone who had his strength and his height and his experience and his weaponry. This was the only kind of person, they thought, who could stand a chance against him. And of course, none could be found because there was nobody like Goliath. And what they failed to realize is that their God doesn't look at the things the world looks at. We learned this when God chose David as king over all his brothers, three of whom were on the battle lines. When God chose David over his brothers, we learned that people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That has always been what he's been most interested in. And as long as the Israelites continued to search for their champion in outward appearances, they were doomed to fail in finding someone who could challenge this giant. So verse 20 tells us that this goes on for 40 days. Every morning and every evening, Goliath would come out and he would shout at the Israelites and they would shake in their boots saying, what, what are we going to do? And then David arrives 
He doesn't come out to fight. He comes to bring provisions for the general to check on his brother so he could report back to his father about how they're doing. Now, we didn't preach this when we got to it in the story, but David has already been anointed as the next king over Israel. So Saul had disobeyed God. God has rejected him as king. And now he has said, after Saul, the next king is going to be David. Just as David gets to the battle lines, he hears Goliath. He hears the usual taunts and he is cut to the heart. Not in fear like Saul and the rest of the Israelites. Not simply because Goliath was being a bully, but more importantly because he was defying God himself. The God whom David loved and served. And when David realizes that nobody, nobody is willing to get up and stand against this man who is so blatantly defying God, he calls him this this uncircumcised Philistine. I hear the, the disdain in David's voice when he says it. This man who is not from God and who had spent the last 40 days mocking God, David is cut to the heart. And David says, I'll be the one to fight him. Now, whereas Goliath had all the hallmarks of a champion, David has virtually none of them. He certainly hasn't been described as being tall or especially strong. He was handsome, but it takes a lot more than that to win these kind of battles. In fact, he had no real battle experience and didn't even have a set of armor that could fit him. All that David brought with him was the experience that he has a shepherd and he has this sling. Now, we, we picture the, the, the toy slingshots that, that children play with when they shoot cans off of a ledge. No, that's not what this is. This is a sling. And, and David is an experienced slinger. He's somebody who can knock a bird out of the air, who can hit an, a target accurately from more than two football fields away. When it was used properly, the sling had the stopping power of a 45 caliber handgun. This is a powerful weapon that David has. So David picks up five stones, places them in a shepherd's bag, and he takes only his staff and his sling, and he heads toward the battle lines. Now, now when Goliath sees David cross the battle line, as David representing the champion of the Israelites, he is indignant. He is angry that the Israelites would mock him by sending such a weak champion to fight a battle that was so important. But then David says something that reveals his heart, a heart that God has likened to his own. And it is the most important passage in the entire story. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. 
And we're going to talk about why that is the most important passage in the whole story. But you know how the rest of the story goes. Goliath begins to lumber after David. David doesn't recoil. He runs towards him. He takes a single stone from his bag. He loads his sling and he slings it. And that very first stone nails Goliath right in the center of the forehead. And I love the description. It says the stone sank into his forehead and Goliath goes down completely incapacitated. David runs up, he takes Goliath's own sword, he runs him through, and then he cuts off his head. The Philistines, who just moments ago were so confident in their champion, they turn and run. They run for their lives because their most powerful part of their army is defeated and the Israelites pursue them and their bodies are strewn all along the road, left for the birds and the wild animals, just as David had promised. Now, most look at this story as the means with which you and I are to defeat those giants in our own lives, those giants that we talked about who defy God. And, and certainly there are many things that we can learn from David's example about what it means for us to come up against these challenges. First, we remember the times when God has rescued us and we expect that he's going to do it again. When David went to Saul and told him that he would fight Goliath, Saul was understandably skeptical because David didn't have any of these hallmarks that he needed to go out and face this giant. But in verse 34, David tells Saul of the battles that he did win when he was tending sheep. He said, when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it down. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and I killed it. Do you get the picture of David grabbing Goliath by his hair? Just as he did with the lion and the bear, running him through with his sword, cutting off his head. But listen to who he gives the credit to. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. It's the Lord who will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David's experience had shown him what God could do, and he had no reason to expect that God would do anything differently in this situation. And when a challenge comes up in our own lives, our initial reaction much of the time is to be like the Israelites and to completely forget what God has brought us through and how he has given us strength that we needed in all kinds of trials in everything that we have faced in the past. And yes, this particular situation in my life may be more challenging. It may be more difficult than all the others that I faced. Goliath was certainly a different kind of enemy than the lion and the bear. He could think, he could reason. He had killed many more men who were much bigger than David. But even the small situations in which we see God working, they remind us that he has always been on our side, even in the most difficult times. He wasn't on Goliath's side. Goliath was uncircumcised. David knew that God was on his side because he was a part of God's chosen people. He belonged to God. But it takes discipline for us to think back to those moments where we've come up against giants, we've come up against challenges, and God has been right there beside us, right there fighting with us and for us. And by remembering those times, it gives us what we need to get through this next difficult time. 
Secondly, like David, we go in with the tools and experiences that are unique to us. In verse 38, Saul had agreed to let David be the Israelite champion, but he thought he was lacking something. And so he tries to outfit David with his own armor. Now remember that David has not been described as tall, and Saul has been described as a head taller than everybody else. Of course his armor is not going to fit David. It was too clunky for him to go, and David knew that if he tried to go into battle wearing Saul's armor, that he would most certainly be defeated. He knew that all he needed was his sling, and, and think about the hours of experience and practice. I think that tending sheep for a lot of the time was a pretty boring job. And so he's like, all this practice and this experience, you know, it's taken me a long time to figure this, this part out. Because I've often found myself trying to wear someone else's armor, so to speak. Trying to be something that God did not make me to be. Trying to imitate the gifts and abilities of other people and always coming up short, becoming discouraged until I realize that God has given me and he has given you a unique set of armor that fits only you. Paul tells us about it in Ephesians 6. He says, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Then he tells us about the belt of truth that we put around our waist. And the breastplate of righteousness that we wear on our chest. And the shield of faith that we carry around us. Yes, we all have the same pieces of armor. But they fit us individually as God has uniquely gifted us and equipped us to do the work of building up his kingdom. Every one of us in the way that God has created us is needed within the church. That, that is a New Testament teaching about what it means to be gifted and equipped by God. And I've come to love the way that God made me. Not, not in a boastful way, but in a way that reminds me that God has gifted me and he's gifted you to face giants differently than other people. David knew that he had what it took because God was the one who equipped and prepared him for this moment. He had been prepared for this moment. And we, we use what God gives us. We use our experiences, even the mistakes that we've made to go and face these giants. Third, we recognize that it is ultimately God who grants success in the battles. David went to Saul in confidence. Listen to the confidence as he goes to Saul and as he goes to Goliath. He knew that he was the right man for this job. That God had called him out to do it. But his confidence wasn't in his own strength or ability to win. No, he said there in verse 47 that the battle is the Lord's. It is the Lord who determines the outcome. When you're on the side of right, on the side of what God wants according to his word, and that's really important, that we look at God's word to determine what is right. But when we're on the side of what God wants, and we are seeking to accomplish what he wants in the way that he has prescribed through his word, because there are a lot of things that we do that don't line up with God's word, thinking that we're doing what God wants. But when we look at God's word, and we know that God has said this is right. And we seek to accomplish it in the way God has said that we need to do it. Then we will have the victory even if it looks like defeat in the world's eyes. And there are times when the world thinks that it has won. 
But we know that the battle ultimately belongs to God. This week, I thought about Peter's words in 2 Peter chapter 3. I love to find these, these verses that just give us such a clear picture of what the world looks like and, and even what our world looks like today. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Peter writes this. He says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Now, Peter sure got this right. Can, can you hear the voice of the world today and these giants who have defied God saying, where is he? He said that he's coming back and yet everything goes on day after day as it always has. Nothing ever changes. We're moving towards progress, the world says. And yet I look at the world and I see anything but progress. And they say, where is your God? But Peter goes on to say that the world forgets. The world has forgotten. In fact, it has rejected the reality that God once destroyed the world with a flood. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. In other words, it is to the world's benefit that God tarries, but he will not do so forever. For you and me, for the Christian, Peter goes on to encourage us in this way. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. In other words, God might let the deniers and the defiers believe that they have won, he let Goliath go on for 40 days. But at some point, I, I promise you this, Jesus is going to return. That, that is a reality for us. And when he does, the whole world will know that the battle has always belonged to God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day will come. It may not come in our lifetime. But it will come, and the world will know. Now, all of this is true to this story. And it's true for me and you as we face these giants in our lives. And while most sermons about David and Goliath would end with the question, who are the giants in your life and how will you defeat them, I want to ask a different question. A different question in keeping with this story that God is trying to communicate to us. And that question is, who is your champion? Who is it that you are allowing to go out and fight in your place when the world puts up the worst kind of enemy, either an enemy that defies God and attacks your faith from the outside or an enemy from within that causes you to question if God is there and if he is good. When the giant comes, who is it that's fighting? See, David had to go into battle. Goliath wasn't just going to lay down. And if God were going to smite him with a lightning bolt from heaven, he would have done so already. David had to go into battle, and it took great courage and boldness for David 
to go. But David knew that it wasn't him fighting. His God was the one who would ultimately defeat Goliath so that, as David said, the whole world would know that there is a God in Israel. And all those who were gathered there would know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle has always belonged to God. That is what the story of David and Goliath is all about. Not necessarily defeating giants, but God using unlikely people in seemingly impossible circumstances in order to make himself known to the world. Can you say the same for your own story? When others look at the giants that you've come up against, do they see you fighting by yourself? Or do they see God fighting through you? See, we, we can enter battles on our own, in our own grit and determination. And occasionally we can appear to win. Even non-believers beat cancer. Even non-believers can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and have a really wealthy and successful life. Even non-believers can have a happy marriage by the world's standards and live forever with the same spouse. But you and I who have been saved, we know that it is only by God's common grace that any of us, Christian and non-Christian, have anything good. And we know that we have a different purpose because we no longer fight for ourselves or by ourselves because our champion has already gone out to defeat a much bigger giant than Goliath. Our champion went out and defeated death itself. And in so doing, he has defeated every other lesser giant in our lives. And that's the point. That God has already defeated death through our champion, Jesus Christ. And if God has already defeated death, then what do we have to be afraid of? If death is off the table for us, then what is it God, that anybody can throw in our way that is worse than that? Death has been defeated. But why? Why did God do it then? And why does he do it now? <laughs> just much a <laughs> But I want to finish out with a question of why. Why did God do it with David and Goliath? And why does God do it now in our lives? Yes, he loves us. He gave himself for us. Those are great biblical truths and realities for us. But Peter gives us the reason in 1 Peter chapter 2. When he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. Now in David's time, that kind of language was reserved only for the Israelites. That, that kind of language was just for the Hebrew people. And, and if you look at it through the context of David's story, you might think that that kind of language is just for Jewish people today. But no, 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 Peter is speaking to Christians. You are a chosen people. You, Christian, are a royal priesthood. You are the holy nation. You are God's special possession. Why? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 
When, when we call Jesus Christ our champion and we recognize that he defeated death on our behalf and we allow him to go before us and to fight every other lesser giant that we might come up against, we are declaring the praises of God to the world. And we are making sure that the whole world knows that there is not just a God in Israel. There is a God who is over all things. And it's in him that we find our strength. And it's in him that we find what we need to go on. And I hope that God has revealed himself to you today. Because perhaps maybe you came in and you didn't even know that you needed a champion. You didn't even know that somebody had gone and defeated death on your behalf and yet that's the reality for it. And now God is calling you to respond and if he is, then I encourage you to do so. To respond in faith, to believe, to be baptized and to call Jesus your Lord and Savior and your champion. Let's stand up and let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, for our champion. Lord, not someone who just won a contest, but someone who went up against death and defeated it. And death was the worst enemy the world could throw at us. And now there is no one greater because Jesus has defeated the worst enemy. So remind us of that, Lord, that when we face a giant, when we face something that challenges our faith or gets in our way or causes us to look a different direction, that we would be reminded that if death is defeated, what have we to fear? Nothing, Lord. Thank you for that great hope and that great reality. May you be glorified and made known through our lives as we seek to make you known and to glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.